How can we improve democracy today? In this podcast series, I'm speaking with people working in publicly accountable organisations, civic society and the third sector to hear about how they're making practical change. This is Delib's Practical Democracy podcast, and my name is Ben Fax. This episode features Dr. Rosalind Fuller, digital democracy expert, columnist, and author of Beast and Gods, How Democracy Changed Its Meaning and Lost Its Purpose, and In Defense of Democracy. We discussed how she became dedicated to working in the field, Athenian democracy, the concept of anti-democrats, and systematic problems with representative politics. Enjoy, this one's a belter. For, um, for anyone that hasn't come across uh, Rosin before, um, say, uh, she's a leading expert on applying the original principles of Athenian democracy to 21st century states and organisations. Um, and her books are based on over a decade of am- uh, academic research. Um, and it is kind of led to uh, to something that you might call Fuller's democracy, which I thought was a was a bold move actually to uh, to name something after yourself. But... Oh well, that that was because I got that actually from uh, I was so while well, in the process of writing, I came across um, this man called uh, Berggren, was his last name, and he named his institute after himself, the Berggren Institute, and I also thought that was a very bold move. Um, and <laughs> the book the book I wrote, however, was kind of a funny book. So uh, towards the end of it, I was actually trying to describe what I was trying to do. And I, you know, mass, mass democracy, participatory democracy, digital democracy. The problem is a lot of all those terms are, are taken, you know, or, or people have another idea under what they mean. Um, and also, if you say mass participatory digital democracy, it starts to be a real mouthful. So I just thought, you know what, I've got a pretty handy last name. Let's just make this short. And then and then I can say that's what it means, right? I don't have to think, yeah, mass participatory democracy, but maybe not how you're thinking or participatory, but maybe something a little bit different. I can say, no, it's going to be fuller democracy. This is what it means. This is what I'm talking about. And I kind of was trying to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek and referring to, you know, this other guy, Berger, and naming the institute after me. If he can do it, I'll do it too. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, it sounds like you've had some time to come up with a defense as to why it's called that. So, oh, no, uh, I thought, I thought then... that's what I thought of right away. That, that that was actually the first thought because I had a lot of fun writing this book, actually. And I, I really didn't uh, pull any punches in it. Or if I did, there were very few punches. So I just thought, you know, just go for it. Um, and it was actually quite a fun book to write in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, you know, actually, it's, um, it comes across... Because certainly, I think with some books, you can tell when the writer is um, is bored, or possibly it's just uh, <laughs> maybe they're just that way inclined, right? But like, whereas other books, they you can tell there is fun there, and um, and so we are here to talk about two books. So one is uh, in defense of democracy, which um, which you published fairly recently. So was that and back into twenty nineteen, I suppose you yeah. published that, or is it precisely? Yeah, which which is a cracking good read. Um, and for anyone listening, we are going to go through some of the themes in that and some of the thoughts. And um, I think it would be fair to say you do not pull any punches, which is great, you know? Like, I think critique is healthy and debate is healthy and, and stuff. But it, I did wonder, and that's why I was intrigued uh, uh, when I when I spoke to you as to whether whether it would be almost not like a little tongue-in-cheek, because it was kind yeah. of written that way, but I wasn't quite sure whether, you know, some things can be tongue-in-cheek and some things can be bordering on like almost aggressive, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so so we'll talk about that in a sec, because um, yeah, I mean that's it's kind of the the main reason that I, I you know I came across you in the first place. Um, and obviously I just use this podcast as a vehicle to speak to people I I want to have a chat with, frankly. So so yeah, it's been really good. So um, and yeah, uh, what we should say as well is that you'd um, yeah, you've already written um another book in uh 2015, I believe. Um, yes, precisely. Or yeah. at least 
At least it was published in. It was published in 2015. Yeah. It was written before that. Yeah. <laughs> how, how many How many years did it take to write out of interest? A was long this time. Ten year passion project. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I wrote my. I was actually based on my PhD, so I started writing my PhD in 2006, and I got done it in 2010. Um, and then yeah. after that, I went. I went. I didn't have a lot of time to work on this book because I was lecturing in law at university universities and I also uh, was putting up you know a second division of a law textbook and writing a lot of legal oriented publications so I didn't have that much time but I was always working on it in the background and yeah it took me about five years of off and on work to kind of try to get it into a format where I thought the average person might want to actually read it because no one really wants to read a PhD thesis. <laughs> yeah well quite I mean it's one of the things I wanted to ask you about with, with both of the books actually and I I'll just ask you now, right? Why not? But um, was yeah, both of these books are, are what I would recognise as kind of valid arguments um, around democracy and democratic practice and the bones of our political systems. And like, none of the books are patronising or sweeping. They they seem yeah like like academic research that's trying to be presented for a public audience. And I suppose the thing that jumped out at me was sort of why, like why bother, right? because well no I mean I know that might sound flippant but like if you're an academic and you, you write for academic audiences and you know there oh, are journals for that that's and interesting like, yeah and then like you know and then other people might be doing some pop science book where they're just making a noisy point right about whatever over the years but this seems you're so valid, right but, you're but so like, right so why so well, why you're, they you're so right in that sense that there there are these kind of streams where books have been sorted into those kind of pop science books where you're right like yeah. It can be an easy read, but often you get to the end of them and you think, why did I waste my life? <laughs> like, there's just nothing. Yeah. There's, it wasn't anything new in there. It was it was nice to read, but it wasn't really much new. Unless maybe you're it's it's something where you don't know very much about that subject at all. And, and therefore, it's kind of something to kind of acquaint yourself with the basics of that subject. And then you get, yeah, yeah. Academic, academic books, which are often torturous to read. Um, but you read them because you have to to stay on top of the field and because you're interested in that field why did i decide that the world should know about this um i guess it's because just when when i started researching democracy i started reaching democracy democracy because i was interested in it because i thought why are things going wrong why are the poor getting poor and the rich getting richer and that was a phrase that was repeated while i was in uh, high school and university so this would be the late 90s and the early 2000s repeatedly you know i i I'd be working at conferences as a university assistant and these professors would get up there and they'd say, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And then they get on to whatever they wanted to say. And I was really deeply offended at their attitude towards that because, I mean, I grew up in the country and I think if I hadn't really pushed in my life, you know, that's where we would have inevitably seen ourselves ending up as these poor people are relatively poor people, I'd say, or middle class, but who were supposed to get poor in some kind of God-given, uh, like, stratagem that no one really can explain to me why that's happening in the first place. So I thought, why is that the case? And I thought, I'm going to look into it. Um, and I started looking at what's wrong with democracy. And it turned out to be a very interesting journey for me. And I guess when I got done, I just wanted to share that knowledge with other people that something's wrong here with the way we're doing democracy and we really should know about it and we really should try to do it better. And like I said, that was in 2010 when I finished my thesis and then I started writing the book in 2015 and then in 2016 Brexit happened and Trump happened and suddenly everybody got really interested in it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So very much stemming from the interest of wanting to to be able to communicate the things you've learned, because you're, I suppose, working on the assumption there's a lot of other people who are kind of pondering the same questions. Um, I just think people should know about it. You know, people should know. (laughs) People should just know, right? (laughs) I was trying to put quite a neat little nice summary on it. If no one one else is doing it, you know, then you're just like, well, I guess I should, right? I guess guess if I don't see books like that on the shelves, uh, I guess I should get out there and try to bring that knowledge out to other people. But they are, yeah, the... They, people tell me sometimes, I thought, okay, I'm going to write this very simply. And then people sometimes tell me, well, it was a bit simple. Uh, some of the things were still rather complex. Um, yeah. So it, it really is kind of difficult to try to hit that tone. I think back mm. 30, 40 years ago, there were more books being written that mm. were more, I can't, I can't be wrong, this is maybe just nostalgia, but that were more academic. Like people would read Noam Chomsky, uh, people would read Marshall McLuhan, which is really quite complicated and out there you know uh people would read like things by buckminster fuller or something like that so you would i, th- I think this idea that things need to be dumbed down and it needs to be pl- just totally pleasant to read something uh is kind of a very modern probably book selling way of viewing the entire literary industry yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah yeah, and yet your books have, have kind of hit that note, at least in terms of, you know, they're taking big ideas and boiling them down for a public audience. And not really boiling them down. I think what the books manage to achieve is is plain English in large respects, actually, which is um which is quite refreshing and the importance of it shouldn't be understated, I don't think. But it does come through centrally in your books that you um you seem to th- uh no I'm not saying you'd be anti-elitist necessarily although that does you know you talk a lot about elitists and, um, and political gatekeepers and things like that but even the way you write that books the books and the content of the books that's that's kind of cool to all of it that that very much comes through um and well I mean so just to take a step back then you you mentioned your PhD so what, what did you actually study um what was the kind of base of your PhD and and indeed what led you to to getting into the world of academia and and, and all that was it just this kind of pondering about democracy or was that kind of later and then you decided to focus on it no, basically that was it. So um, I graduated high school and obviously I had good enough marks from graduating high school to go to university. So I went to university and I studied law. Um, I, As I said before, I come from a quite rural area. So people wouldn't have seen university as like a time for fulfillment or to enjoy yourself or explore things. I definitely see university as a place you go to in order to get a job. And you should actually be quite grateful if you're able to get a place in university and work very, very hard to get a practical education that would allow you to fend for yourself and provide for yourself in life. Uh, so I studied law. Um, I don't. I found medicine a bit too gory. <laughs> um, and so I, I finished studying law. I got my. I broke my first bar exam. So I studied law in Germany, actually. So there's two sets of bar exams there. You do study for four to five years, you write your first bar exams, then you do what's called a referendariat, which is like called Develine or Articline in English-speaking countries, then you write your second set. But lots of people, I wouldn't say lots of people, but some people, if again, they get a high enough mark in the first bar exam, uh, write their PhD right after that. Um, and I thought I would do that as well, because I thought I've been given the chance to write a PhD. Um, this was back in the day where, like, admission criteria were probably a bit more stringent than they are now about writing a PhD. So I thought, well, when is this chance going to come around again? 
Um, and therefore I'd really like to explore this question. And I was fortunate enough to find a supervisor who was willing to do that. Um, and I originally started focusing on international law. So democracy and international law, because that was my specialization while I was studying law, was public international law, which is uh, humanitarian law. So the laws of war or conflict, um, treaties between states, uh, things like that. Um, so, and then I kind of got from there into thinking, what is democracy? Because originally I had a quite legalistic concept of democracy, you know, it's democracy is your freedom to associate, it's press freedom. Those are the kind of like answers a lawyer would get, give you if you asked what is democracy. But that was kind of leading me around in circles. And eventually I went back to the history department and started looking into what democracy had meant historically. And that's when everything started to take a very different turn. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I was uh, wondering if the um, you know, if the whole Athenian thing was going to rear its head at any point, and I did, I did wonder how you could get, you know, the the whole law thing and then the Athenian thing. Although, obviously, Athens was known for for like law courts and and so on and so forth as well. Um, and actually, yeah, I mean, it might well explain, and and hopefully we can talk about this more. Why you have a slightly different perspective on all of this than um a lot of people that you might see uh operating in and around democracy or talking about it or practitioners, um, all that sort of stuff in that. It doesn't seem like you have that sort of political science background, you know, which is yeah. kind of common. I know. Yeah, I know. It's kind of weird. Um, so obviously I have read a lot of political science articles and political, you know, studies sure. related to political sure, sure. science in the meantime. But yeah, no, it's not my background. And I do think that does show because obviously law is about uh, building a case and, you know, thinking cases through. So there's this, this tendency to go, okay, there's a problem. You know, not to, I, I suppose what, although I would have read a lot of practical philosophers, you know, Rousseau and Montesquieu and all of that, um, law is a, a very practical field. You are confronted with a problem. It's a case that happens. You don't get a choice what that is. Um, it's a set of circumstances that happened in reality. And now you have to resolve that case according to, you know, the principles of justice and the legal system that you're in. So this kind of idea of having uh, these grand theories of things and thinking about, you know, what would be great if and kind of being a little bit more idealistic is very far, I think, from from a lot of lawyers experience um, and kind of far from how people with that background or maybe even just the inclination to get into that uh, area of life would would see the world, would probably see it more as a problem. You know, what, what's the problem and how can we solve that problem? Uh, rather than having a sort of, you know, grand theory approach to life or how things should be. I mean, lawyers would say, oh, how things should be. I mean, come on, <laughs> we could go on about that forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, it really resonates, actually, because um, I, I, I studied as an archaeologist and, and did quite a lot of ancient history. Um, oh, cool. Way back when. So again, I'm not, you know, kind of of this world, if this world is, is a thing um, either. And say... Yeah, I, I find some of the things that have emerged in recent years quite weird. You know, a lot of things claiming to, to have Athenian roots and stuff when I was thinking, I mean, it was 15 years ago I studied that, but that's not really how Athens works, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And that's actually one of the big beefs I have with some people is I just feel like I don't I don't care if you have a different conception of democracy or you'd like to do something different. But yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess that's, I don't know if I'm just obsessive, but I really, really sometimes when something, when something like that is off, I'd really like go and burrow down and try to get on 
one wavelength with, with those points. And I suppose that does maybe come from being a lawyer as well, or, you know, being educated that way as well, which is that little points matter. And hmm. what the fact is really, really matters. And we're going to clear that up right now. And we're going to uh, not spare, I suppose, anybody's feelings in getting to that point. Yeah. Like lawyers yeah. are pretty robust, obviously, right? I mean, that's kind of a stereotype. They're jerks. Um, so uh, there, there's kind of a more idea of that, you know, robust argument is probably something a lot of lawyers wouldn't even take that personally. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, um, and so for, for people listening to this, um, just to put some context in this, because I think um, we're both kind of referring to the fact, shall we say, that there's been a lot of um, recent practice um, around democratic participation or progressive forms of democracy um, that um, has taken the guise of Athenian democracy. Um, and I, I think that's quite often expressed in the form of citizens' assemblies, which have been kind of wildly popular, um, at least in Europe. And they have been. Elsewhere. Yeah, they yeah. have been. And so, so citizens' assemblies, just for anyone who maybe hasn't heard of them, are these kind of exercises where you randomly select a certain number of participants, it could be 100 people. Um, there was one in the States where it was up to 500 people, which would be very large. And those people, um, they get information from experts and they deliberate on whatever the topic is. Uh, it could be abortion. It could be climate change. Um, there's been a, quite a few different ones. And then they come up with some recommendations or resolutions based on that. And depending on the person you're talking to, either that's supposed to feed into uh, parliament um, and parliament should consider that, or there are some people who argue that they should just make law. Um, and so what, what they all have in common in this, this, I think, started probably with, well, at least in the public sphere, outside of the academic sphere. It probably started with David Van Raybrook's book uh, Against Elections, is this idea that that's how things were in Athens. And it really ticks me off out of all proportion uh, because it's not really how things were in Athens. Athens was this mass participatory democracy. And there was a council of 500 in Athens that would prepare the agenda for decision making in the assembly. But 500 people in Athens was a lot of people because they only had about 30 to 40,000 adult male citizens at any one time so that was already a big portion and then on top of that uh the way the assembly worked was on a first come first serve basis and that's where they actually passed laws and decrees which were actually their more important you know more usual way of getting things done and you know these uh these original kind of uh, resolutions that the council of 500 were make were really up for debate there anyway you know they could be amended usually the council of 500 would also be open to taking ideas from citizens so it was kind of like a, they, they've taken sort of an administrative body and i think really exaggerated its importance and also downplayed like seriously downplayed the uh numbers of people that were participating in Athens compared to the population and not really taking account of the fact how much our population has grown. I mean, there's like estimated around 50 million people entitled to vote in the UK. So 50 million is just so much more than 30,000. You have to adjust accordingly to get up to those numbers of mass participation, um, as was the case in Athens. So I do take great exception to uh, this idea that that's how democracy was run in Athens with these little citizens assemblies because it just wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the things you mentioned um, in 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 defense of democracy, which is a really inconvenient title to try to introduce, um, is the fact that it's not just this sort of 500, right? It's the um, administrative burden on citizens and how, how actively they'd be involved in 
in the functioning of the state and, and also how frequently. I think you mentioned, you know, you could almost yeah. expect to be involved with some sort of public administration weekly. So it's yeah. not just that 500 you talk, it's it's many thousands more people and you'd always directly know more. And and then if you say, okay, there's, there's 30,000, 40,000 people, it's not just that kind of 500 and that active element. It's actually, well, you know, maybe perhaps a third of society is actively involved in, in making the state function. And I think that changes the complexion again, right? Because that really is mass participation yeah. at that point you know proportionally yeah that's just it it was that that was uh, around it they estimated that maybe about a quarter of people would be active every day and of course that would change who was who was active because um you had the assembly you had courts which were huge you had a whole lot of officials um and then yes you had bodies like the council of 500 and all kinds of other minor things um going on so yeah i mean they had elect generals who were elected for example so the ways you could participate were myriad, and um, they did see where where I think a lot of I call them sortitionists in my book, but where people who are advocates solely of citizens' assemblies without really seeing them in context go wrong um, is that they think that okay we have to pick people to participate, so right, we need to select people to participate, um, and that's what they did in Athens. You know, they carefully selected people to participate. Like there wasn't much careful about what went on in Athens. Um, and they, they weren't kind of trying to carefully pick people to participate. They were really just trying to like distribute people into these bodies because the challenge that they had was actually having enough people to participate, you know, keeping those numbers up day after day, week after week, year after year, uh, for like at least 140 years, even if you have kind of a more narrow definition of democracy, much longer than that, if you kind of expand that a little bit. So, um, these, uh, this watery method of selection was meant to just kind of blow people out <laughs> into these various uh, bodies where they were meant to carry part of the burden of decision making for the state. And it got to the point where they even had like machines that would enable them to do it faster. Like that's how often they had to do this. They had to do it so often and it was so much trouble to do it that they actually invented machines <laughs> in order to make it faster for themselves. Wow, crikey. What kind of machines of interest? Oh, yeah, it was called called a clerotarian. It was called a clerotarian. And okay. it was, they basically, they had these identity tickets, uh, even back then. So it was kind of like having a driver's license without a car. And these identity tickets would be used, they would put them in a basket and they'd shake them up. Uh, and then uh, someone would be... A, ticket would be randomly drawn out and then that person would randomly draw more tickets and they would stick those tickets into the slots of a stone face basically so there'd be all these slots arranged in rows and they just stick those tickets at random into those rows and then they'd pour uh, a basket of black and white balls down the side down down through this kind of tube on the side of that stone face basically and if a black ball ended up next to the row with your ticket in it, then you would not be selected for service. But if a white ball ended up next to that row, then you would be selected for service. So it was a really simplistic mechanistic machine. Uh, mm. But one that that you could call a machine and that made things happen a lot faster for them because they could go, okay, that's like 10 people that decided that's another 10 people instead of having to do it all individually. Nice. nice. Made it really hard to cheat. Made it really, really hard to cheat. <laughs> Well, there you go. There you go. But I bet a lot of people were praying for the black ball, you know, especially on like Friday, Friday afternoons and things like that. Like, mm, I don't... the black ball. I'm like, <laughs> I, just, I well... just need the weekend off, you know. 
Of course, there, I, I don't know about that because it was all voluntary. So you would have to say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm reporting myself to jury duty today. It wouldn't be like today where you just get an envelope in the mail and you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> no, jury duty. The time's very inconvenient. I want out of it, right? Which is what happens yeah. to a lot of people today. You have to say, okay, I'm going to go down to the courts today. And the reason people would do that is because they got paid some money to do that. So uh, everybody got paid a relative, a small amount of money, but still significant enough that people would do it. They kind of found their pressure point. Um, and especially uh, if we think anyway, historians think that older people in particular would go down to the courts because, of course, this was a time when a lot of labor was physical labor and elderly people would find it quite hard to keep up with a a high level of physical labor and they might go down to the courts instead to earn in a bit of extra money for the household. Oh, why? So even then there might have been a a sort of a graying demographic pressure. on. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there may have been, yes. (laughs) (laughs) For utterly different reasons. (laughs) So, okay, cool. So um, just to take a step back then, just to try and make this in any way coherent, because I could just chat to you about anything for quite a while, or just listen to you talk about Athens, because it's just like, yeah, it's fascinating. But um, so you see, so obviously, at some point, you'd kind of stumbled, well, not stumbled across, you were, you were, um, you were studying democracy, right? But, but also law. And so at some point, you must have stumbled across, um, you know, all the Athenian stuff, and then felt, I suppose, moved, at least to, to write this book. And you've, you referred that it took quite a long time to do. So, that, so the, the first book, Peace and Gods, How Democracy Changed Its Meaning and Lost Its Purpose, in light of, you know, everything you discovered, like, yeah, why, why did you want to, to write it? I mean, I think you've, you know, referred to the fact that you want to get people out to a, to a broader audience. But, but why this specific book? Because it has a very, it has a very clear theme, I think. And it, it talks a lot about the problems with representative democracy and, and current voting systems. And you talk about the so-called myth of representation. So why why did you start there, if you see what I mean? Like, why why was that the, the, the initial focus in terms of trying to communicate? Well, I, I guess because if you think about representative democracy, it's like, okay, it makes sense, right? I mean, <clears throat> uh, we go vote in elections. Well, it, like, yeah, well, that's just it. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of on the surface, it kind of seems to, right? Like you go yeah. vote in elections, and your representative represents you, and they go to the parliament, um, and they form a government, and then that government sends representatives to international bodies or to negotiations. Right? But it's like, oh, yeah. but the, the idea is okay. You, you control them that way. You control them with your vote, right? Um, and so I guess I thought, okay, what's going wrong there, though? Why do they seem to make decisions nobody likes? I mean, why is everybody complaining about the government then? Why isn't everyone like, oh, yeah, the government's great. Of course, I voted for them, right? Um, And I thought, okay, why? Why, why, why? And I guess I just started to also look into how electoral systems work. Um, Because I lived in Germany for a long while, they have a different electoral system there. So I was aware that there are different electoral systems in the world. And I just started to kind of, I guess, play with numbers a bit and to read a lot of books and articles written by people who study elections um, full time. And you started to realize, okay, there's a lot of statistical skewing that goes on in that. Um, so especially in first past the post, which is what we use in most of the English speaking worlds. Um, so if you go to vote in your district, in your voting district, usually in a first past the post system, your the person who is elected, the candidate who is elected doesn't win the majority of the vote. <laughs> So we have this great myth that, you know, the majority wins, but most of the time the majority doesn't win. Uh, It's pretty, you know, you're doing pretty good as a candidate to actually win more than 50% of the vote in your area. It's usually, you know, 35% or maybe 40 or 45%, but 
rarely over 50%, except in the US where, because it only has two parties, this screen works in a different way. Um, so I thought, okay, huh, right, let's think about that. You add up all these 40% or 35% seeds and you potentially get a government. That government way may hold 55% of seats in parliament or 57% of seats in parliament, but they may have only gotten 40% of the vote countrywide. So I began to realize that winning elections isn't about winning votes. Winning elections is about winning seats. And that's exactly how uh, political parties think about it. You know, how can they win the most seats with the least votes? I'm not saying they're trying to lose votes, but they're trying to maximize the amount of seats they win per vote. Um, and you'll see this. So like the Green Party in the UK wins practically no seats <laughs> with a really large number of votes. Um, but the SNP actually has the best rate over the last few elections. They win the most seats per vote. So you kind of start to realize, okay, are we really represented? Is it is it an accurate picture of representation? Or is it completely like distorted representation where you can even end up being ruled? And this has happened before. You can end up being ruled by a party, or if you take the case of the U.S. presidential elections, a candidate who actually lost the popular vote. So this can happen. And it kind of goes a long way to explain why there's this kind of gray zone between what people want and what people vote for and the outcomes they get. And then there's also kind of issues like, what what does a vote even mean? I mean, if you vote for the Conservative Party, does that mean you back everything the Conservative Party is going to do? Usually not same thing with any other party. So you're using a very strange way of measuring public opinion, a quite inadequate inadequate way of measuring public opinion in a lot of ways. But we accept it, even though it's really largely fictional. Certainly. And and you, you it's, good, it's good to hear actually in your own words, even you've, you've read quite a lot of uh, in, in someone's book. But um, yeah, the um, it, it, what it seems to lead to, or what you kind of go on to talk about, is also the consequences of that, which obviously are myriad, but also the fact that you actually end up with this relatively small amount of people with actual power, and, and naturally the, the relatively small number of people needed to achieve that power, and then the kind of problems that also come from that, quite apart from you know what you argue, which is the lack of representation, and and particularly in the, in in the first book, you talk a lot about the influence of um of money, <laughs> and yeah. how it seems to influence every election at every scale everywhere in the world, and and you know how those those very small people are also far more I don't know potentially corruptible either systematically or personally or indeed yeah I don't know but um could you talk us a bit about that and you know I mean that's a yeah. very broad question right but I feel like the book like says so much about it that I don't really know how else to pose it so yeah, yeah okay so first of all yeah there's the issue that um in a lot of parties today backbenchers don't necessarily have that much power in the party um so a lot of the time the government's formed by kind of a clickish people within that party and they're the people who are really running the show and if a backbencher for example doesn't go along with an important vote then they'll lose the whip uh in the party and that means they're sometimes it can mean you get expelled from the party or sometimes it can mean that you know you're not going to get backed anymore <laughs> to win an election in your constituency so you're out of a job um and that's how you control uh you know 300 votes are, are more with only maybe 20 people kind of sitting at the levers of power um, so that's kind of another thing. Unfortunately, a lot of the people you vote for who are backbenchers aren't just sitting in parliament going, what will I do today? I wonder if I should go along with this thing my government has proposed. Um, they know they have to go along with it. 
or they will face consequences. So it's a way that you kind of, the number of people who you control and who have real power is even smaller than you think it is. Um, so money, yeah, well, I think what money really helps is it, it prevents people from kind of new entrants, particularly, I would say, into the political process. And we definitely really see this in most Western countries where most of the parties have been around for years and years and years and years and years. Um, without really a lot of change to the political landscape in terms of successful parties. And part of that is because they have huge resources. And some of that is private financing. So businesses, obviously, uh, most parties are taking quite a lot of money in donations from businesses. And that prevents them from seeking that money from individuals. Well, why would you do it that way? Well, of course, it just takes you a lot less time to get money from a business uh, than it does from an individual who doesn't have that much money to give to you. Um, when corporations spend, they're kind of spending usually someone else's money. They're spending the money of the company, not their own personal money. Um, but, you know, unions also contribute a lot to uh, to election spending um, as well. Um, and in particular, what's particularly interesting as well is that media coverage also kind of plays a role. So it's estimated by some people that getting favorable media coverage is worth like 10 times the amount of money you would have paid for that if you had to take out your own advertisement. Because, of course, people tend to blank advertisements. Um, they kind of say, well, of course, you can just say good things about yourself. Um, but if you can get an editorial coverage that's favorable to you, then you're in a much better position. And, you know, as a small candidate, I mean, I ran, I ran as an independent in two elections in Ireland. So it was really interesting to kind of put this into practice. Um, as a Did small you? candidate. Yeah. I, as wasn't, a, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. About? Oh, in my area, which is Dublin, Fingal. Um, oh, nice. So it's very, it's very, very hard to get your name out there. Um, and even if you do, like, you'll feel like you're doing a lot. You'll feel like, wow, I'm just talking about myself all day long. And, it gets to the point where you actually get bored of doing it. You start to feel like, wow, I've told this story like a thousand times. I'm getting very bored of this. Um, but it's still like nothing. It's like a drop in the bucket that just is hardly even noticeable. Uh, because like the way the media usually covers elections is to talk about the two main parties again and again and again, or maybe three main parties, depending on where you are, like again and again and again and again and again and again and again, and, again. and to cover every, you know, often completely meaningless <laughs> of their horse race politics and it's not that people enjoy listening to that it's just like that's all you have to listen to right um so it's really really hard to kind of insert yourself into that conversation in any way and i don't just mean as like an independent candidate but also as a small party so you start to get this kind of incumbent bias um not just of the party that's in power but of the old established parties um, and that can work as long as those parties are open to change from within. So I think in an, at a time when you would say, well, just join a party and, and seek to influence it from inside, that would work. But I think we've kind of seen less and less of that over the last 20 or more years, unfortunately. I mean, yeah, Corbyn, uh, Corbyn, I guess, would be a big exception, obviously. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of because, so because, respects, yeah. because that kind of was kind of really pent up for so long as well. I mean, there was there was really this demand for change, and then he kind of fulfilled it to some extent. And then, I mean, of course, in the end, wasn't successful and was to some extent taken down by his own party. Um, yeah. So yeah, he's yeah. kind of like an exception and proving the rule at the same time. Yeah, 
the best of times and the worst of times, yeah. I think, with, with Kilburn in that respect. Um, so yeah, so, um, to, to just to summarise a little bit then, so the, the first book, it does seem like you'd identified quite a lot of um, problems, shall we say? And yeah. certainly kind of definitely just pointing out I mean, it seems like a couple of key things is like, like you've mentioned is the media just, just now and then the kind of economic inequality and all of the kind of things that that drives. So it, uh, and then it seems like with the, with the second book in defense of democracy, I mean, it literally is what it sounds, right? Like it's what can and should we do? Should we be doing with democracy? And, and who are the, um, who are the people kind of getting in the way of that change? So it seems kind of, um, slightly more positive, I suppose, in its spirits. Um, and starts to get down into well yeah what could this actually look like which um yeah I found super super interesting because this is a kind of largely the field I work in and some of the kind of things and um, that you point out are things that I like also recognize as well which is refreshing because again you know uh people have different opinions on this stuff okay. and uh anyway I won't get I won't get too into it but um I kind of wanted to talk a bit about um if we could um some of the kind of anti-democrats that you identify um in that book because I think that's something that would like, yeah, be of interest to to most people, and also just this idea that some of these these anti democrats you you identify, say people who are, for whatever reason, trying to stop um, a better form of democracy through various prejudices or beliefs or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, could you talk us through some of these anti democrats and maybe like what you mean by it and and some of the more interesting examples? Yeah, well, they've, they've okay. yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. So, like, they've kind of always been with us, right? Even in Athenian times, there were anti-democrats. Um, sure. But, 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 really, you know, when I was when I was first writing my PhD, I thought I, one of the things I thought to myself in the beginning was, okay, academic work. Do I have to say why, why I'm researching democracy or why I view democracy as a good thing? And I thought, no, nah, probably not, because everybody agrees that democracy is a good thing. So I'm just going to leave that and get right into it. Uh, and that worked, right? No one ever said, but why democracy in the first place, Rosalind? Because, you know, that around that time, 2006 to 2010, there was widespread agreement in uh, most of these circles that democracy was a good thing um, and that we should really be trying to make the rest of the world more democratic, actually. So then around 2016, really, when there was when there was the Brexit, first the Brexit vote and then the Trump election, and suddenly there was just this onslaught um, of academics and also journalists who started saying like democracy is not a good thing there's too much democracy and this all happened because there was too much democracy and people are stupid and people are gullible and people don't know their own self-interest and that's why there's too much democracy and we have to throttle that back um and some for some people they were just you know kind of letting off steam i suppose they didn't they kept saying we have to throttle it back but they didn't say how uh but then there are a few academics and some of this predates the uh, those events by a little bit and some of it kind of came afterwards there are a few academics uh one of them is that i go into the book is jason brennan who was who is a philosopher in the united states um he's a libertarian and there's two other uh, academics Ilya summon and um, brian kaplan who have very similar thoughts to his own which is that um, they're libertarians, <laughs> and unfortunately, they're living in a world where people are continuously trying to, in their view, sort of infringe on their freedoms, um, and uh, that really isn't okay, and how could we possibly sort of prevent this from happening? How could we have a world where there would be more libertarian values? Because unfortunately, people 
do not agree with their libertarian values, right? I mean, they've been preaching this up and down to the ends of the earth, but they've never really been able to get everyone to go along with them or even a substantial majority of people to go along with them. So how could they manage that? Well, Jason Brennan says a lot of things, but one of the things he says is there should be a voting test. So you should have to pass a test in order to be allowed to vote in an election. Um, Ilya Summon is a lawyer. Um, he argues that uh, there should uh, that the Supreme Court in the United States should uh, quash laws, that more laws should be taken out of the public sphere because uh, people don't decide on them correctly anyway, and we should let the private market decide on that instead. So rather than having a law, which you would kind of collectively have agreed on, um, we won't have any law. And, you know, how things are in society will just be determined by how people are acting. So that's one stream of thought. And then another is kind of, you know, the more center left, if you want. Um, there's a Canadian guy called Daniel Bell. He lives in China. He thinks that we should move more to a Chinese system, which in his view, in his view of this Chinese system, uh, would mean that we let eminent persons uh, make decisions for us, or at least partially make decisions for us. And I mean, like these people were not like, I didn't pull any punches, but they didn't pull any punches either. I mean, they, they go on repeatedly in their books about how, um, you know, unfortunately, Western people are just too stupid uh, and stubborn and insisting that they have the right to make decisions for their own lives. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and there's also there's also um, a study done by uh, two American academics. Um, their names were Akhan and Bartels. And they did this study where they purport to show that people change their votes based on all kinds of irrational things, um, like up to and including shark attacks. Um, and that's why people are irrational. And their solution for that would be that we need to move to a situation where civic society groups, which I guess means NGOs, um, are making those kind of decisions more based on people's identity. Um, and, you know, you know, maybe you would belong to an NGO that kind of I don't know, captures your identity, I suppose, in their view, and they would make be involved more heavily in decision making rather than individuals who are just irrational. So that's a bit of it. That's not all of it, but that's probably the most important points. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, just reading it. I mean, they're all fundamentally terrifying. All yeah, of the other they kind are. Of models, you know, and there was, I think, one of them was the the kind of the economic drivers, where this idea that you just move kind of stale, you'd move across country. Yeah, well, that's on economic means and using some fairly terrible historical um, parallels. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Ilya Solman's main argument. He's like, well, you can just, or one of his arguments, which is if you don't like it where you are in your state, just pick up and move. And people will do that. People will just pick up and move to uh, a state that's better for them. And, you know, they'll say things like, oh, you might say that's unfair and only rich people do it. But actually, very rich people move around a lot. But really, really poor people, like people who make under $5,000 a year, which in the U.S. is I mean, how do you even survive on that? Move a lot too. It's like, yes, because they're super desperate. And then he, he went on to a large, a large extent about how, um, you know, uh, during, uh, during the Jim Crow era in the United States, so before the civil rights movement, a lot of um, African-Americans moved from the uh, southern states where there is obviously, you know, way more discriminatory laws, uh, way more violence perpetrated, um, against people of color, um, they would move to northern states where that treatment was at least a little bit better, you know, where the laws were somewhat more protective, uh, where people could vote more in elections because they weren't being deprived of their voting rights through things like voter tests, I might add. You know, they, they'd make up these crazy voter tests that they'd force people to take. 
Um, uh, and therefore, you know, that's like a good example. That's a good example of people determining their own best interests of saying, hey, it sucks for me here in the south of the United States. I'm going to move to the north. It's like true in a certain sense, but I don't think we should be celebrating that as like a, a way to to move forward. I mean, it does it does happen that people are in terrible situations in the world and people in other parts of the world are in terrible situations. They're refugees. They pick up and they move because they don't see another alternative for themselves, right? But that's a situation mm-hmm. where things have deteriorated to the point where that's your only move left. It, and it's a, it's a horrible uprooting thing for people to have to go through, actually. Um, yeah. Why would we take a situation where people can no, vote no. and put them back into that situation? You just wouldn't. I mean, to put it mildly, it seems a little regressive, doesn't it, to go yes. back to that as a way to suggest we run society in the future. Yeah, no, it would suck. It would suck. And and that's what some, I mean, these, these examples, actually, that you kind of mentioned, you know, in the libertarianism thing. And, and I think, you know, I at least kind of would read through it and I and deep read through it. And you sort of raise an eyebrow and you think, oh, ha, ha, bless them. But obviously now we're starting to see, well, actually not bless them because these people are bloody dangerous. But yes. I thought the thing that was, was more interesting is the 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 anti-democrats who purport to be democrats and actually Mm. that's kind of potentially i don't know whether it's actively insidious but it's kind of i don't know like a yeah a super interesting one because um we refer to at the start with this um this move towards citizens assemblies as a way to to i don't know manage manage every layer of government and every layer of decision making seemingly well that's the suggestion but actually, I hadn't thought of them as anti-democratic. I thought they'd um, they'd become a bit of a monopoly on thought and practice, um, at least in Europe, in terms of how you can involve the public in anything. And I see that your stance is going, well, you know, this is the kind of Athenian model. And actually, you know, potentially we could replicate this. And you've already, using a whole bloody book, outlined the problems with our current version of democracy. And now you're suggesting, you know, you know future versions and say... This book, the, the fact that you mention these anti-democrats in the context of the book is to say, actually, these are the things blocking moving to a more uh, modern Athenian system or some version of mass participation. And you obviously you mentioned some principles we can talk about. But could you talk me more about this idea of the anti-democrat? Because I think it also kind of links into like the first part of the book as well, where, you know, you mentioned some people who almost have this elitist mindset that the public are kind of too stupid or you know too irrational to really be able to be meaningful active citizens because i think those two things are linked this hidden anti-democrat and then maybe an elitist mindset yeah that might just be the connection i've made i don't know i don't think it's fair to push that on you but that's the connection i've made so i I do come your thoughts i suppose i do think that unfortunately you can i mean i i don't think that the idea of having some kind of sortition or lottery incorporated into democracy as was the case in athens is a bad thing um but what i object to is this idea of it is a a rather elitist interpretation of citizens i think you could have citizens assemblies in a way that are not elitist and i think you could have a way in which they are elitist Um, unfortunately the elitist mindset has kind of taken over this in recent years um so rather than saying having an idea like what we have done in Ireland, which is we did have citizens assemblies and a constitutional convention, and then we did have a few referenda based on that. So always keep that in mind. We've had a very, very few referendums where everyone gets a vote and we have a normal referendum process uh, in which relatively few people are even aware of the citizens assembly to begin with. Um, 
Um, so it's pretty much like a normal process. It's maybe just a way of actually circumventing the electoral system to some extent, how it's been used a little bit in Ireland that government still cherry picks what they're doing. But it's a way that I don't see it. Like, I don't think that the numbers are high enough, even in Ireland, which is about 100 people. I don't think that's high enough to be representative. But at the same time, at least it's not governed by this elitist mindset that I see in other citizens' assemblies, um, especially in uh, the UK, where this idea is that people have made a wrong decision. And Brexit is, of course, always the prime example here. Um, and they, if only people had, dis- had, had talked more to each other, if only people had deliberated, um, they would have come to a better decision about Brexit, and that better decision would have been to remain. Um, so they're, they're already taking, uh, making that final decision and just trying to make a process where they can come to it. Um, and I find that that's the case in a lot of these citizens' assemblies, um, where rather than saying, okay, we've gathered some people together, even if it's, in my view, a completely inadequate number of people, and let's just see what they come up with. The idea of the citizens' assembly, as executed right now, is these people are uninformed. They are uninformed, and they must be enlightened by a group of hand-picked experts. Um, and then they're going to deliberate, which is, of course, different than debating. Um, and this is another way where I think they really part ways with how things were in Athens. Um, there's this kind of, uh, you know, kind of school book idea of these ancient philosophers, you know, declaiming to each other in these very high tones. Um Democracy in Athens was definitely a bit more rough and ready than that. Uh, there was definitely conflict. There was definitely debate where people would say, no, I think you're wrong. They wouldn't you know, need to sugarcoat it in a way that everyone gets along and everyone comes to this one right answer because it's the right thing for society. They would recognize that there are different interests in society. And what's in my interest may just genuinely not be in your interest this time. Uh, but tomorrow is a different day. And, you know, we, you might you might win next time, right? Uh, that's how a democracy works. Sometimes I win, sometimes I lose. Um, so that's how democracy would have been understood in Athens. As it's understood by the Citizens' Assembly crowd as they exist right now, is it's supposed to be this careful deliberation coming to some rather cut-off, um, uh, you know, ends. Ends that can't be really radical um that can't be really i think get to the root of the problems in our society because uh usually the topics they have are kind of uh limited anyway so you're kind of trying to have a nice polite discussion about solving problems in uh in in our society with um you know hand-picked people they're supposedly randomly selected but you can't randomly select people and get you know people of so many ages and see people of uh you know different genders and equal proportions and things like that that's that doesn't work you have to stop being random in order to achieve that um and kind of come to these really nice sounding conclusions i mean if you look at the citizens assemblies we've had in ireland i was looking at them the other day they've probably spent our national budget about 30 times over why because all these resolutions sound great but the rubber hits the road when you start talking about how to pay for them and it's something they mainly don't talk about other than in, you know, kind of like taxing some people somehow somewhere, which I think those other people are going to have a big issue with uh, when it comes down to it. So that's kind of uh, kind of my problem with them. There is this elitist tendency to use the Citizens Assembly to say the society as a whole, like the society as a whole is uninformed. 
you know, it's just a bunch of horrible idiots gallivanting in the wilderness. And we are going to inform you. And based on the information we gave you over a very short period of time, you're going to come to the right decision. And then that decision is going to be implemented. And we're not going to involve all of you other people out there in the wilderness who have very wrong ways of thinking. Well, I mean, there's a huge accountability problem with that, quite on top of everything else. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It is complicated, and I can I can see why it does. You know, I don't know to some extent polarize opinion, and I do I do share some of your um some of your frustrations and and concerns um certainly because I think when I first saw them appearing, and obviously the Irish example was presented as this this miracle new way to do things. Um, I was sort of positive because I'm in favour of all forms of like improve democratic practice you know and the more the right people are talking about it and the more you can get into power structures broadly that that's great but what what concerned me was when it became um the answer to everything and then there doesn't seem to be um a fair way to kind of scrutinize and it also seems to be that or nothing else and i just i just think we've spent a long time coming up with lots of ways that are complementary and that we've yeah. identified lots of problems just like your first book you know you've identified a lot of systematic mm-hmm. problems with with representative politics and I think with, with the work I've done with Dilip and what Dilip has done and just lots of other people what you realize though like the biggest kind of problems around democracy they're, they're kind of systematic problems and that there are uh, bottlenecks you might say that yes. um, get in the way the way of change and they can be and they're at all levels right and all different types of democracy yes. and, and you've identified them some of them bottlenecks and some of them are just it's just big big problems like too much cash right um and um and it's interesting because i kind of i think you articulate in fact you yourself kind of go on to articulate kind of things like you know these these gatekeepers actually sorry it's your term so probably just yeah. your thought creators um because actually it doesn't need to be one or the other it just needs to be all um and i do wonder about the lack of coordination and um yeah and it was only when you mentioned about the different types of like kind of almost persona of people who might kind of like um do this work it suddenly kind of swung into action because Certainly, I don't feel kind of of a political science world or policy world or a, or a public sector world. And I think um, it means that a lot of the time I just think, well, clearly, we just need to involve more people. You know, you, you, like, if there's certain local decisions, like a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, they simply are like they're busy and they've got kids and they've got jobs. Yes. And they don't know if their shift's going to change. Right. Absolutely. Like, that I'm aware almost sounds elitist. Right. Because that sounds almost paternal. Right. And it's kind of patronizing. But it is true that people are busy and that actually even in, in you know, monumental times, like you don't get out of bed and think about politics. You know, you really, really don't. And so it's a question of like. How can more people be involved more often, more easily? Because frankly, you know, our public institutions are built on that basis. You know, you've got things like the need to consult and involve in pretty much every public institution, you know, and like there are ways to do that that aren't being taken advantage of. And it does seem to me almost um, uh, like an innovation fallacy as well, where you kind of slap on this new, terribly exciting process, but actually if the core, uh, core functions aren't, working properly why bother because it is that is it also another form of lipstick on a pig because you see in the world of tech a lot you know like raping new apps that are going to save tech uh, oh save yeah tech, right and yeah of like, course see about a million of these and you might see citizens assemblies as one it doesn't actually affect me i just think it's worth actually calling it out sometimes and saying that let's talk about other things but yeah don't know it's um it is an interesting one and yeah, I don't know. I think the okay. issue the issue is I think a lot of people they want to, and this is I think something that goes down to the um elitist attitude around citizens assemblies as well, which is people want democracy and they want people to be involved. 
but they don't want to have the risk of things going in their view wrong. So they're like, how can I involve people? But there's no risk to me that something will happen that I'm not okay with. And you just can't have that. Um, that's really trying to have your cake and eat it too. So how do you get people to participate? It sounds kind of counterintuitive, but everyone tries to be very positive about democracy. Oh, democracy is great. Democracy is wonderful. Blah, 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 blah. Like, there's a negative well, you side. Did, you, did, you did write a whole book in defense of it. Yeah, but, but yes, right? but it's not. Yeah, but I, I'm definitely defending democracy, but it's not, like, going to be a, ut a utopian world, you know, where everything's happy. Like, the, the negative of democracy, which I think is a negative worth saying, but it is a negative is that you are accountable for your actions. Like you have to bear the consequences of your actions. Um, and that's the, mo that's the big motivator. So if I'm going to, like right now, I could participate in any number of consultations in my area, right? But I usually don't, I don't, I run in elections and I don't participate in those consultations most of the time. Why? For me, like I have the time to. Me, because um, I think it's probably not gonna go anywhere. I think I'm just wasting my time. So if someone said to me, Rosalind, you know, we're going to make some changes, you know, we're going to make some changes to your neighborhood or your area. And what the people in your area decide, that is literally going to happen. I'd be like, fine, I'm down there in a heartbeat. Or if they said, uh, today we're discussing tax rates, I'd be like, okay, sign me up. Because I really need to be in on that discussion because I want to control how that goes. Um, so... In a way, it's like it's a negative motivation, which says I'm afraid of being left out because there are going to be consequences. And unfortunately, I'll have only myself to blame for not doing that. Um, so when I ran for election, I actually did use a software to get people's preferences on things. And yeah, a lot of people were kind of shocked because they'd say if they'd say something later, like, I don't agree with that. I'd say, why didn't you participate then? And they think, oh, like politicians don't normally say that kind of thing to me. Politicians are normally more like, oh, yeah, great. Everything's wonderful. You know, I'll, I'll kind of take responsibility for it. And I really went around shoving responsibility back onto other people, um, which I think was a really kind of good thing and a salutary thing. The other way to get people to participate is to pay them. Because, again, although that sounds very positive, the negative is you don't participate, you don't get paid. You're out that money. So... Um, in some ways, it is like democracy is a maturing process where you are confronted with positives and negatives and you're going to be rewarded or potentially punished depending on how you react to those, just like you are in real life, right? I mean, you can't go out and you know run into the middle of the street. You might be run over by a car. So um, that's something that I think uh, most people, including a lot of the people who have a more elitist way of of implementing citizens assemblies don't want to do they kind of want to keep everything under control because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't you know they're afraid that people will do all kinds of crazy things or they're afraid that something bad will happen but yet they want people to be involved it you can't have your cake and eat it too i wouldn't do it <laughs> yeah no i know what you mean i know show me the money show me the money that's what it's all about as you said, Dave, that is a major problem with with democracy. But uh, but there we are. No, um, so uh, this brings us neatly on, actually, to your to your five principles, um, which is how you, you kind of finish up um, the book in defense of democracy, which which is good. And I think we talked about the first the first few quite nicely. This uh, shift to online and on mass, which I think we can agree is a good idea, and also paying people to 
to give up their time, right? But uh, I did just to go back a sec. I thought it was really interesting what you said about, um, yeah, just uh, if you were if you were kind of guaranteed more control over the decisions, or if you thought actually if I go along and and this is going to make some meaningful change, then then I'll give up my time. And I've certainly been involved with a few projects where a politician, a directly elected mayor, whoever it may be, has has just treated uh, a population like adults and has introduced a bit of humility and just said, you know, do you want to help us try and solve this problem? And it's so difficult for people to do like culturally. Um, and unless you have that backing, I think that most people are just not going to bother to participate. Um, it's a bit of an aside, but anyway, I just... Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think there is. There definitely is. Like, we definitely have engaged in a rather infantilizing way of participating, which is that people have become very used to the fact that they can blame their politicians for everything, right? Um, so we've kind of entered into a sort of passive, independent, downward spiral. Um, and if you do want people to participate, you definitely have to get the word out and you have to make it over something actually meaningful. Um, local politics is probably something, it depends what it is. Um, if it comes to building projects, people can be quite interested in that. If it's something really minor, like people just don't care because they don't have a strong opinion on it either way. So it has to be something meaningful enough that you drag people out, especially for the first time, like when it's not a habit and when people are already very cynical. Like something that I would get a lot is people would say, no, that won't happen either. So you're already dealing with a really high level of cynicism in society towards those kind of things. And because um, people have kind of been there before you and sort of burned people before, it's of course even harder to get them back on board now. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience. Certainly, um, we've just finished up one. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I mentioned it. You might have seen it with the um, with the Scottish government. Say, so, um, okay. first minister up there, like um, announced that she wanted to you know, involve the Scottish public in how to to end the the lockdown. Mm. Um, because you know they have a certain amount of autonomy over how to do that up there, and so we launched a, a crowdsourcing project with them. Not a project. They just used our dialogue platform, and I should say they did all the work, but. It was such a marked difference from the way that other places have done it. I've seen um, in Ireland, um, there's talk there might be a similar national conversation, but I'm not sure what's happening. Oh, really? Um, mm, they're just kind of ending yeah. the lockdown, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> they're just it seems kind like of going ahead with it, right? really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, Nicola Sturgeon's announced that today, actually. But um, but yeah, so we launched one, and it was so interesting the difference of approach. But it was it was central to kind of what, what we've been talking about in terms of they've said you know, we want to know you're a bunch of grown-ups, here's the evidence, here's what we're considering, tell us what you think. And it was just yeah. this big, open, public, albeit moderated discussion, and it just worked really well. And, they, you know, the, the conversation was civil, which I think, you know, you hear a lot of people saying you can't have a civil online conversation, which is just nonsense. You can't, yeah, it just needs to can. be moderated. And it needs to be constructive, you know. And yes. the other thing that I thought was really odd about it was keeping it on Twitter, you know, with like the hashtag associated with it and the URL, there was hundreds and I don't know, possibly thousands of tweets about it, and they were all positive. I think there was one that was slightly questioning what might yeah. be done with it or something. There's always one. But normally, <laughs> there's always one. Well, there's normally more than one. Like there's this weird kind of thing where you do something positive, and that almost makes people react negatively. And I say, well, why don't you just figure this out yourself? Anyway, but this was so positive, and it was constructive, and it just demonstrated that it works, you know, and it can work um, very simply. But actually, it has to be, you have to have Nicola Sturgeon promoting it, you know, and making a public yeah, and things like that, you know. That's is, true. Is not, it's very difficult to do as a routine measure. 
Yes. Um, well, it would be possible. It'd just be a matter of effort. But um, yes, that's true. I mean, it's just, it is really hard to get the word out and to get it to the point where people have heard of what you're doing. It takes a phenomenal amount of effort to do that. As I say, especially in the beginning, if it was something that happened all the time, people would be expecting it, um, but they're not. So um, even, you know, there's things I hear about all the time, like the thing you just mentioned that I think I've been reading about coronavirus like every day for the past you know, two months or three months, and I didn't hear about that. So uh, you can kind of see sometimes how how hard it is to reach people, right? I mean, I'm interested in that. That would have been something I'm very interested in reading up on, but yet I didn't hear about it, even though I'm constantly looking for stuff like that. So it's very, very hard to break through into that point where you are reaching everybody um, that you want to reach. Um, yeah, but I mean, as far as conversations go, yeah, I mean, a big problem with Twitter and social media is that there's really no point to it at the end of the day. You're on there, you're discussing why. I guess, I guess you're discussing in order to get something off your chest, because that's kind of what it does. Um, it doesn't end in a decision. It doesn't end in a constructive action, as you're saying, right? I mean, often when you say, okay, but what are we going to do? That's often the point where everybody goes silent for a few minutes, because... You're kind of rearranging your brain from the rant to trying to think of what you're going to do. Um, and unfortunately, like the social media isn't constructed to do that. It's also not meant to do that. They're just private, you know, they're private social media uh, things. They're constructed to make money, not to find uh, solutions to uh, society-wide problems. Yeah. And it, and it is easy to conflate the two, either cynically or um, just a lack of knowledge. But it is certainly possible to have constructive debate and dialogue online. It's just it, it has to be crafted. Um, and it's lazy to say that you can't, frankly. And um, with the long the long tail of this, this COVID thing, you know, whatever it bears out, we, we will move to a more permanently socially distant society in the short mm-hmm. term. I mean, you know, you've got to see it. You've got, I think it's reasonable to expect that for one to two years. So more of these processes will well, i mean they're already notionally online but more of these processes will have to be genuinely online and i do think that you know what's what is great when it's done well is that you see the you know the kind of political layer is it will be you know it, it sees the value in it and and the public see the value as well and i think you might even talk about it you know but this the social contract thing seems to be about right there and the balance seems to be about about right as well um so yeah anyway it's hopeful um, well, we've been talking for bloody ages, and I'm aware that you are talking to people in America and, and various other things at weird times at the moment. So I thought it might be good if you could, like, if it's possible, um, to maybe summarise, like, what your some of your, I don't know, hopes are for the future around this. Like, because, you know, everyone can go and read your books, and I suggest that they should, because they're a rattling good read. But, yeah, what's, what is your hope? Like, you talk about, you know, moving towards more people power, and really that's all democracy means... But what do you see actually happening, say, over the next five, ten years, given given the state of politics, given where we're at? What do you think the trends you'll see emerging? And, and do you think we'll move to this more digital form of participation um, or not? Mm. Yeah, I know. I really feel like things come to a fork in the road for us um, because we have this new technology, which is, you know, I'm not the only person to compare it to the invention of the printing press. I mean, it's just disruptive of the power structures that existed in society previously and society has to change to account for that you know much in the same way globalization has um you know affected the previous economic structures and you have to make adjustments in order to account for that and to keep things at an equilibrium that's acceptable 
to a lot of people. So what could happen? Well, there's like a definitely a dark uh, possibility, which is that um, the Western world deteriorates into increased factionalism, especially in the United States. Uh, where one side is continuously trying to clobber the other side over the head, and eventually they just take that to the point where they destroy the fabric uh, of their own democracy, and the side with the most power ends up just seizing control of the country in a very undemocratic way. I think that's, you know, it's possible. Um, it's like it's kind of like where they're headed now. Um, the other thing, of course, is to keep in mind that, like, technology, well, potentially liberated, it is also potentially very damaging. You know, you can see um, more surveillance being used. You can see people being, having their fates decided via algorithm, you know, even in, like, the justice system, for example, potentially trying to decide someone's chance of reoffending using algorithms, but also just, you know, being used to keep track of people. Right on on a general basis, who do people associate with? What do they do? Um, how does increased automation perhaps lead to more and more people either being jobless or being in low paid, insecure jobs without very much money, and those profits are flowing uh, to what I would call oligarchs? Um, so that's also a very very dark potential future. Um, and then you see a, a more positive future. That's why I think like we really have to do something. I mean, left to their own devices, that's kind of where we're headed. So I would definitely pull back and try to counteract that and come to a more positive, equal vision of the future. I think in the next five to 10 years, the most promising thing is probably participatory budgeting, because um, it sounds it sounds like something that wouldn't be as promising. It sounds like something maybe limiting. It's just deciding about a budget. But like 90% of all public decisions revolve around money one way or another. You always have to come back to the budget. And participatory budgeting allows people to say how the money should be spent. So it's something that you can start small, but you can expand it, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger to bigger chunks of the budget. You can potentially be um, making, you know, decisions on tax rates in this manner, um, which, you know, we probably should be doing eventually. Um, so I think it has really the perfect sweet spot of scalability and, um, impact. People can see, okay, that happened, that had an impact. Um, unfortunately, often it is used for really small projects. Um, and you get some people who are interested, but you get other people who are, you know, kind of think it's not really worth it for something so minor. But I think that's something that you can really scale. I think the other thing is that I know you guys do a lot of public consultations and online consultations. Um which I think is really good because who has time to write a letter and put it in the mailbox anymore, uh, provided you can even find one. Um, so I think that's really good, but I think what the difficulty there is um, getting governmental bodies to take that feedback on board and make changes to what they're doing. And that's often because the consultation is happening too late in the process. After they've kind of gone through everything, they'll say, okay, what do you think about this? And people will say, and they'll say, okay, well, too bad. I was never going to change my mind anyway. Um, or it's too late, too late to do all these things. It would, we'd have to change too much to do that. So I'd really like to see that backed up to the beginning of a process and to have people involved more in implementing goals rather than just rubber stamping um, things that are already in the works. I think that would really, really, really be good as well. So unfortunately, consultation sometimes means, like I heard, yeah, now I'm going to do it, I'm going to do anyway. I think it should be a consultation where there has to be more feedback, like more justification given to 
the uh, people who've participated in that. Um, and I think if there can't be, uh, you know, like legitimate feedback, there can't be feedback that really holds water plausibly, then I think, you know, changes have to be made to those plans. And I think that would encourage uh, local planners to involve people earlier on in the process because it would be cost saving to do so. Um, so, yeah, I think in five to 10 years that can happen. Another thing is, of course, electing people who agree to, uh, to con I'm not even going to say consult, but maybe agree to do what their constituents want um, in uh, if they are elected. So that's another thing. I mean, usually only independent candidates do things like that. So parties usually don't, but it would be great if they would. Um, and then fourth, um, it would just be great to probably have some more referendums. And that's something that people are usually aghast at, uh, especially in Britain, because they don't like the outcomes of the referendums. Um, but if you could have some referendums that would really get to issues like around austerity and around housing and around job security, I think those could be really, really useful. Crikey. Wow. Almost, uh, almost, I uh, wish I hadn't asked, to be honest. Uh, but no, just being rude, sorry. But yeah, um, yeah, referendums, wow. Yeah, it's, it is such a pointed issue here. But um, I hadn't thought about it, actually, in light of, of, of issues like that. You know, if it was to say, I don't know, should we uh, impose a tax on the mega wealthy or something like that? Yeah, that's probably like, prob probably that would be the first thing that would happen, to be honest with you. And that would solve a lot of problems. Well, it would uh, it would um, at least redistribute a lot of wealth anyway, which you'd hope would uh, would uh, yeah be good. But um, I thought it was interesting what you said there about a couple of the other bits, like um, in terms of um, you know the, like electing the right politicians. Like I do wonder, and I'm still kind of waiting to see whether like a younger kind of breed of politician is going to come through that's mm. a bit more in a OFA with the internet and recognises the you know recognises the possibilities and. If nothing else can computer, you know? So, yes, like, no, I totally be... understand. I totally understand your frustration there. Um, so it would be interesting, though, to see whether that comes through or whether that is maybe just a type, you know, that will continue to come through. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. And also the, the PB, so the participatory budgeting stuff, I, I, I agree as well. I think that's actually could be good as a kind of a Trojan horse thing, especially, you know, if it actually is, say, 1% of an organisation's budget. Um, yeah. Know, if it was genuinely like one percent of a council budget directly given over, because you know you start to understand issues of yes. how cash is spent and like accountability and, exactly. and scrutiny processes, and so I think that's kind of probably more interesting than maybe first sounds because it seems quite limited in its scope. But actually, I think it could do a lot. Um, and in some respects, I almost think PB is easy because I do take your point around consultations, and I think the difference there is making consultations work is is really hard. Yeah. Because it, it, like PB in a way is kind of easy. Like if you can get it agreed, we know how to do PB. Exactly. Um, the difficulty is getting it agreed, politically, you know, with some politicians, right, or whoever. But actually, changing consultation is a really like long term game because it's this uh -huh. intersection between like policy, right, yes. and like service delivery, and like basic, just I don't know these days, kind of almost service design type stuff as well. And mm -hmm. then you are absolutely this thing about policy cycle and doing it so late that it's just not a consultation anymore um yeah and like all and then having like meaningless feedback or none at all and it's all the problems we've tried to kind of tackle directly with um platforms with citizen space specifically and we've been doing it for about 10 years and there's only you know you can see organizations with a thirst for it initially change yeah. their practice they use the tech to scale the better practice 
Okay. You see organizations who use it for years and their practice never really gets any better. Yes. Like, you know, what you're going to do, right? And like, but there's only kind of so much you can do, but we do so much to try to improve it, but it is so much harder because it is easy to do like what you might call non-sultation. Yes. So the only way to do it is like this long-term cultural change that says, asking people who are going to be affected by this decision earlier is actually going to be helpful yes detrimental when that becomes culturally embedded then it's exactly what it sounds like right and like and organizations don't change very quick so the difficulty is the change process so yeah Yeah. I, i completely agree with consultations it's the hardest one but actually i think it has some of the biggest scope but it sounds so kind of dull and old school and what's the point that we almost discard it in search of these new modern like participatory methods, which I think I think there's a role for both. That's true because there's discard, <laughs> discard consultation at your peril, you know, because that's the one that that's when you're like, what my street is one way now. When the bloody hell did that happen? Those are the those, yeah. you know, those interface with government moments that thousands of people have and are pissed off by that yes. could be improved. And it oh, just almost yeah. seems like until you fix consultation why are we why are we doing anything else yeah anyway, that, that's true that's a super negative no. view, right but like it's that also, is a way of thinking about it so it's also just about like sometimes it does come to the point where like a term has been so um you know kind of it's been so used and if it's used by people in this in a wrong way then unfortunately it becomes so mm. associated with that that that's what pe- people have so many assumptions when you bring it up right um like even yeah. for example if i would say digital democracy in ireland they actually tried e-voting machines about, um, oh, like probably nearly 20 years ago now. And they bought these mm-hmm. voting machines and then they didn't use them. And it turned into a huge government scandal. But sometimes when I say digital democracy, people just assume that that's what you're referring to, which is completely yeah. off base, right? And it can be the same way with consultations. People are like, oh, no, that again. Um, so sometimes it pays off to maybe just think of a different term. <laughs> of what you're doing and be like okay we're starting again this is what we're doing but i mean i do agree it's just it's really unfortunate that so many civil servants don't see the value in that um yeah because it could save them so much i mean there's nothing worse than than doing something and having a great project or a big project and then it turns out people don't like it for some reason that was actually relatively minor and could have been easily corrected but wasn't that's it that's it that's it i mean just that is one basic reason why you do it you know like there's so so many reasons it's not just like development projects you know it could be anything at all um there's been like myriad change to social care in the uk with um largely um led by austerity and like you can make much 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 better fine-grained details if you speak to you know enough service users for sure and you just see the disparity in practice is incredible like you'd see some councils once once we don't work with i might add who who um do like literally wouldn't consult at all and then told people these are the changes and with predictably poor results. Yes. And then people who simply consulted the service users who didn't make those mistakes. And it's like every aspect of the system we work on, you know, environment, transport, airspace. I mean I I like I can't even think of any now, but like which is weird, but there's probably twenty or thirty kind of key areas we work across. Um and all of those decisions can benefit from simply asking people who are affected. And it sounds so simple that it almost seems banal to state it. But sometimes I think one thing I'm not very good at articulating is saying, you should obviously involve more people using the internet in more decisions more regularly and um, earlier. 
and in doing so that will make everyone's life a lot easier and actually yes. quite cheap to do it'll make your life a lot easier maybe, it will make your life easier maybe yeah i know sure but yeah you'd hope make most people at least in terms of basic on the decision making i almost feel like maybe we shouldn't you know write books maybe we should just write one paragraph and say it is so patently clear we should do this <laughs> shall we all just crack on yeah i kind of feel like that too i do feel like that too sometimes (laughs) because you know i've run it i've run into situations like that when i'm canvassing you know there's there's a path not very far from my house and people were driving their dirt bikes up and down that footpath and the residents were annoyed and they reported that so they put um a post in the middle of the footpath like a metal post and they said look this is an example of what's idiotic because they said all these uh, elderly people cannot get down the footpath on their walkers anymore and their their mobile wheelchairs. So they actually block the path for everybody when really the issue is just the motorbike. So I always think of that as like an uh, an example of like, okay, you put this post in, now you're probably going to take the post out again, you know, and, mm. and meanwhile, you haven't even dealt with the problem. But probably you should have just, you know, sent a police officer out there once in a while <laughs> to find them, mm. people who are doing that, you know. But, you know, I just, I, 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 when I've been canvassing, I've come across all kinds of things like that, where it's kind of like a knee-jerk reaction sometimes to, to maybe a complaint without really consulting with the people in that area and going, okay, we have this issue, what's the best way to deal with it? Because you're right, the people who use it notice things. It's really hard when you don't use things to notice things. Um, and I say I noticed that when I've been canvassing, because, of course, you just walk around neighborhoods for hours and hours and hours and hours. And you start to notice things about them that you thought you knew, but it turns out you don't, right? Um, And the people who are living there kind of have actually that knowledge in their heads of how things work. I mean, they know how, how the rain runs when it gets flooded. Like they know how people use the street. Um, they know about all the antisocial behavior in the area, you know, and I mean, I know with planning, it's maybe a little bit different, but they, they kind of know like how far would I walk to go to a park and, you know, just things like that. Right. Um, hmm. So, so you're just missing out on all of that knowledge. And then often what happens is the county council will do something and people will complain about it uh, because they did it the wrong way. <laughs> and it's hard to separate then like the kind of malcontent complaint which you're going to get anyway because there's always a few people who will complain about what you did you know you can deliver them a a load of gold on their doorstep and they'd find something to complain about or you know the genuine complaints which is i really wish you'd done this differently and i appreciate you're trying to do a good job but really 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 this is a problem um, and I just don't understand. Like, if I was doing something, I think I would. I think I agree with you. It's patently obvious. I'd be like, fine, what do you guys want to do? <laughs> you know, what yeah. do you want the playground to look like? It's your playground. <laughs> Definitely. If nothing else, I'm a lazy, lazy man. Yeah. Like, do the work for me. Surely. At least early doors. Yeah. So, yeah, no. Oh, it's crazy. And, uh, yeah. Anyway, and that and there we go. And that is why consultation is important, you know? All of that, what you've described, would be consultation. And, mm-hmm. like, lots of people do do that. And um, it does seem mad that that hasn't become standardised or systematic. Um, but I think we uh, we know the, know the reasons why. It's just culture. Culture. It always comes back to culture, right? And, uh, yeah, the lack thereof in this field. Um, okay, well, I've run out of words, as you can probably tell, because I've just, like, um, mumbled away to nothing. But, so, um, all I can say is it's been an absolute pleasure having a chat. Yeah, it's been great talking to you as well. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> So the two things we should say is naturally, as I've mentioned about 800 times, you have written a couple of books. 
you can basically buy them everywhere, as far as I can tell, including all your hopefully ethical online bookshops. So In Defense of Democracy, 2019, and Beasts and Gods, How Democracy Changed Its Meaning and Lost Its Purpose. Is that actually the title or just the kind of yeah. Kind of subtitle? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to call it The Democracy Delusion. That was my working title. Um, Ooh, and yeah, that I know. good. Why didn't you do that? Um, so the publisher came up with that, but I have to say, like, over time, I've really thought it's actually a really good quote because I, I actually say that it's so true. People do think of themselves as kind of like beasts or gods rather than as people. And if I think about it, that really is the basis of a lot of problems in democracy. So over time, I've come to realize that that was actually a pretty good, it's a long title, but it's a pretty good title that my publisher came up with. So I actually have to thank them. Okay, fair play. Can I, I? I kind of would see in in that I'd like to be the beast and the god. Is that possible? <laughs> well, I guess I guess that's it. Like we're humans, we're somewhere in between, right? So hey, really? that that is yeah. kind of what it is, I suppose. <laughs> okay, all right. I'll have to pick one then. In which case, so greedy. Um, okay, cool. And where and uh, where can people find you on like the internet and stuff? Like, oh, um, yeah, I have I have my own website, just rosalindfuller.com. Um, and we also have our organization is called the Salonian Democracy Institute. So if you Google that, you'd get to our organization um, as well. Yeah, great. And I've just realized we didn't talk about that at all. But that is that is excellent for the listeners. They can go and explore more stuff from you. It's just happy days, right? Like There's just loads more. So all good. Exactly. Um, and yeah, who are you on Twitter as well? Oh, I'm just Rosalind Fuller on Twitter. And we should say it's Rosalind, so R O S L Y N. Oh, good point. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Exactly. And Thank then, you. Uh, it's not my first pos- podcast, you know. <laughs> so, really, at least down to nail this stuff at this point. <laughs> uh, or at least it's not quite as terrible as it used to be, and, and I'll settle for that. Um, but yeah, I think, well, it only said, serves to say, um, thank you very much for, for your time and for your for your chattiness and for your insight. It's been, uh, it's been brilliant. Yeah, thank you as well. It was great to talk to you.